Hello, Highland Church family. We're so excited to continue in the book of Philippians this morning. Before we dive into our passage, let me go ahead and open us up in a word of prayer. Father, we have been so blessed by our time in the book of Philippians this summer. So many amazing truths that Paul has recorded for us. As we dive into just an important passage today about our citizenship, uh, I just pray that you speak to us, speak through your inspired and errant word, and help us to better understand what it looks like to live as kingdom citizens for your honor and your glory in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, each year our young adults group organizes a team of 20 to 30 young adults to go down to Mexico for a short-term mission trip each spring. And before we go down to Mexico, as with all of our short-term mission trips at Highland, we go through a time of extensive training. We have one particular night that entirely focuses in on the topic of cultural intelligence. Cultural intelligence is essentially the ability to go into a different culture than your home culture and not be offensive. So we spend a little bit of time focusing in on that because if you know anything about cultures, every culture is unique and different than other cultures. And there's a little bit of an art of learning how to understand and interact with those cultures in a non-offensive way. Just listen to some of these different and unique cultures that you might see if you traveled to a few different countries around the world. You know, in the U.S., we oftentimes use our fingers to point something out. However, if you were to travel down to Nicaragua, no one would be using their fingers to point, but instead they used puckered lips to point in different directions. So if you were asking for directions, you would have to watch their lips and they'd be pointing over that direction. In the U.S., you might run down to Starbucks for a specialty coffee drink. And if you ordered one, you'd probably get one filled with cream and different types of syrups. They're nice and sweet. Particularly, I like vanilla sweet cream cold brew. That would be my go-to specialty drink. But if you were over in Ethiopia and they served you a specialty coffee, you could expect some rancid butter and salt added in to really spice it up. That's what they would enjoy. Now, let's say you travel over to Japan. You might be comfortable with wearing your shoes in your house, but in Japan, that is a big no-no. Instead, you would have to take your shoes off and put on the house slippers that would be just outside the door. But make sure if you go to the bathroom not to wear the house slippers into the bathroom. You have to take the house slippers off, go into the bathroom, and put on the bathroom slippers for that particular room. A little different than us. And if you were to go over to Tibet and you were to greet someone, in the U.S. we like to give a handshake, but don't expect that in Tibet. Instead, everyone would stick their tongue out you. That's, uh, that's how they say hello. You know, some of those customs and tradi traditions seem a little foreign to us because they're characteristic of cultures that are different than ours. But uh, before we start to think those are strange, remember we've got some strange customs as well that would seem a little different to other cultures. We still use the imperial system, one of three countries in the world. Three feet in a yard, 12 inches in a foot, and then 1,760 yards in a mile. Why do we put ourselves through the pain of such a complicated and antiquated system? Not only that, we have a holiday each year where we look to a rodent to advise to us whether or not we are going to have a longer winter. To the observing eye, that probably seems like a strange tradition. Every culture has its own set of customs and traditions and behaviors that make it unique from other cultures. 
we can quickly recognize when someone's from a different culture by the different language they speak or the different way that they dress or the different customs that they adhere to. Our cultural identity is reflected in the way that we live. And that's precisely Paul's point this morning in our text. At the end of Philippians 3, Paul is contrasting two different cultures, two different kingdoms. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. And just as cultures have different customs and traditions and behaviors, citizens of these two kingdoms have vastly different and diverging customs and behaviors as well. These two kingdoms prescribe two opposing lifestyles. And here's the thing that Paul wants us to realize this morning. Our lifestyle always reflects the kingdom that we are a citizen of. Our core identity, our citizenship, always is reflected in our cognitions, in our affections, and our behaviors. Our passage today is a challenge for all Christians to take seriously our calling to live out our identity as citizens of heaven. Because from the moment we become a new creation in Christ, we are given a new identity We are no longer enslaved to sin like we once were. We are no longer ruled by the passions of our flesh like we once were. Instead, we are now kingdom citizens. And our life should be increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. Our new identity will create new patterns of thinking and affections and behaviors. And our worldview is very different than the worldview of those who are still a part of the kingdom of this world. However, if you've been a Christ follower for any time at all, you know that's a daily battle. It's not always easy. Every single day, we have a spiritual enemy and our own abiding flesh that wars against the new desires and affections that the Holy Spirit gives us. And every single day, it's up to us to choose to be in step with the Spirit. We have to stand firm. And that really brings us to our big idea today. Here's the big idea for the rest of our time Stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in your faith. We're called to stand firm in our faith with Jesus Christ. And that exhortation to stand firm is really an exhortation that's oftentimes used throughout the New Testament. It's the same verbiage that Paul actually uses in Ephesians chapter 6 when he talks about spiritual warfare. And we are to stand firm against our spiritual enemy. I want us to think about that term for a moment, stand firm. It really conjures up the idea of pushing back against resistance. When you stand firm, it implies that there is a resistance around us. We stand firm when there's an enemy who's trying to force us back and get us to retreat. When I think of that verbiage, stand firm, I think of someone wading upstream in a small river. As you try to move upstream, the powerful currents are always pushing in around you. And each time you take a step, you have to make sure to regain your footing on the slippery stones or else if you fall, you're carried away with the currents of the river. Paul wants us to have that image in mind when we think about the Christian life. We're citizens of heaven who live smack dab in the kingdom of this world. We're bound for heaven, but we don't live there quite yet. And as kingdom citizens, we are trying to advance upstream against the currents of our culture, against the currents of sin, self-interest, and idolatry. So what are we to do? How can we consistently live out our identity as kingdom citizens in the the kingdom of this world? How can we stand firm in our faith? And that's what Paul outlines in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through Philippians 4, 1 today. 
follow along as I read aloud. Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Now notice the first word in chapter 4, verse 1. The first word there is therefore, meaning that verse 1 is kind of the application point from the preceding verses. So he says, therefore, stand firm. That's the application point, stand firm in your faith. And then in the previous verses, Paul outlines three ways for how we can stand firm in our faith. So let's look back at verse 17 to discover our first principle. Here's Paul's first principle, point number one. To stand firm in our faith, we need to follow the right examples. Point one, we need to follow the right examples. You know, one of the best ways that we can learn to stand firm in our faith is by following the example of godly women and men who have fought the good fight and run their race with endurance. Look again to the words of verse 17. Paul says, you need to keep your eyes on us. You need to essentially imitate our lifestyle. You need to focus your attention on godly mentors who embody Christ-like living. Essentially, Paul is saying, if you want to grow in godliness, then you need to surround yourself by godly Christ-like followers. This verse is a call for Christ followers to intentionally seek out godly influencers, mentors, and disciplers in our lives. But notice, Paul specifically instructs the Philippian believers at first to imitate him. Now, when we first read that, that sounds a little pretentious and prideful, doesn't it? Paul's saying, imitate me. Does Paul somehow think that he is like the gold standard of Christianity? Is Paul saying, you need to live just like I do? I I don't think that Paul's trying to be prideful here. I think he's just echoing what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 11.1, where he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You see, Paul never encourages people to conform to the image of Paul. Paul didn't view himself as this portrait for people to come and marvel at. Paul viewed himself as a window that as people looked at him, they would see through him and see Jesus more clearly on the other side. He was always uh, engaging and helping people to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And this letter, the letter of Philippians, is really Paul outlining the example he wants them to follow. He wants them to find joy in Jesus rather than happiness that comes from happenings. He wants them to serve other people sacrificially with the mind of Christ. He wants them to pursue sanctification with grit and determination. He wants us to consider everything in this life as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. He wants us to never retire from serving the Lord. We need perseverance. He wants us to get along in the Lord when we're struggling with preferential issues. That's the example he wants them to follow. But notice that Paul doesn't only point to himself. He also points to 
Timothy in this book, to Epaphroditus, and to other people who are also exemplifying a godly lifestyle. But why does Paul tell them to fix their eyes on godly examples? How does that benefit them? Well, I think Paul rightly recognizes that we learn best by watching others. We have a responsibility to find godly mentors who can invest and disciple and encourage us to look more like Christ because the Christ-centered life cannot be done in isolation and seclusion. We spiritually thrive when we are part of a Christian community. We spiritually shrivel when we're living out a Rambo Christianity, to quote Pastor Jeff from a few weeks ago. One of the American church's greatest failures is the individualized lens that we view Christianity through. We think our faith is a matter of private interest. We think my relationship with Jesus, my spiritual life, it's just between me and the Lord, no, no one else. However, that's not the vision the New Testament outlines. That's not the vision Jesus himself envisions for his followers. We're called to be a community. We're called to be a family of believers. We desperately need one another if we're going to grow in our faith. You know, the New Testament constantly outlines this apprenticeship and discipleship model for spiritual growth. Jesus invites and expects us to learn from the godly example of other Christ followers. We learn best when we're watching other people do something well. We improve when we're being mentored and coached by someone who has more knowledge and experience than we do. Listen to this, mentorship both amplifies and accelerates growth. Now, think about this way. Let me use an example. Let's say that I want to learn to paint landscapes with oil-based paints, right? Now, right up front, I'll tell you this. I am not an artist in the least. I am, I am not particularly good at art. I, I have no idea how to paint. I've never painted with oils once in my life. But let's say that I have a beautiful canvas. I've got a palette with every color I could need. And I've got all of the tools and the brushes sitting over on a desk. I have everything that I need. Am I going to be able to instantly paint a masterpiece just because I have all the right equipment? Absolutely not. Because I don't know how to use the tools. I don't know the first thing about painting. But let's say that right as I begin, I wheel in a big TV and I decide to go on to Netflix and pull up an episode of The Joys of Painting with Bob Ross. I've always wanted to do this. I've never done it yet. But you pull up an episode of The Joys of Painting with Bob Ross. And just as I get started, he mentors and coaches me through this 30-minute episode for how to use those tools. He teaches me how to mix a little titanium white with cobalt blue to make the perfect color for snow. He teaches me how to use a, a fan brush to make happy little trees on my mountainside. He reminds me that when I make mistakes, they're not always mistakes, but happy little accidents that can be turned into something new. I, I have someone there that knows what they're doing to coach and to teach me and to instruct me on how to use the tools properly. If I want to be a decent oil painter one day, I need a coach. I need a mentor. That same principle, though funny, that, that same principle it, is true in our spiritual lives. If we want to grow into godly men and women, and we desperately need godly mentors to teach, instruct, and disciple us along the way. Just like with painting, having all the tools doesn't do anything for us. Having all the spiritual tools doesn't do anything if we don't know how to use those tools properly for God's glory. And you know, there's a lot of Christians who don't know how to use the tools that God has given us. God's given us everything we need for a life of godliness, but a lot of the time we don't know how to use the tools. There are a lot of Christians who don't know about the power of the Holy Spirit that abides within them. 
There are a lot of Christians who don't understand how to apply the Bible to the context of their everyday lives, how to read the Bible in context, how to properly pray, how to worship, how to share their faith, how to cultivate intimacy in their walk with the Lord. And that's where spiritual discipleship and mentorship comes in. The Lord wants us to keep an eye out for people that are doing it well. And when we spot them, when we discover them, Paul encourages us to place ourselves under their tutelage. Paul encourages us to initiate a mentorship relationship with them. You know, this is a message that the Christian church desperately needs to hear. Because there's a lot of Christians who really aren't engaging in this discipleship and apprenticeship model. I was doing some reading this last week uh, on the Barna Research website, and, and here's what they found about the state of discipleship in the U.S. Only 20% of Christian adults are involved in any sort of discipleship activity. And that included, for their research, a wide range of activities, including Sunday school and fellowship groups, meeting with a spiritual mentor, studying the Bible with a group, or reading and discussing a Christian book with a group. That's only one out of five professing believers. There's a lot of us who maybe are growing a little stagnant in our spiritual maturity because we're not being discipled. Don't grow complacent in your sanctification. See your need to open yourself up to mentorship, to discipleship, and to the accountability of a godly sister or brother in the faith. So what's our application point from this? Well, we need to surround ourselves by godly examples who regularly point us back to Jesus. Here's maybe some practical ways to do that. The first one is this, the power of the regular coffee meetup. As you're in church, as you are around some other Christ followers, if there's a, a, a guy or gal that uh, exemplifies the type of Christian you want to be, just having the courage to approach them and say, hey, can, would, you, would you mentor me in my faith a little bit? Can we grab coffee every couple of weeks and I could just share what I'm learning, what I'm struggling with. I could uh, just ask for some life advice. Just the power of the regular coffee meetup with a discipler that we're authentic and vulnerable with. The power of a godly mentor couple. For young couples that are wanting to embody a Christ-centered marriage, find a couple in the church that does it well and just ask if you can meet up for dinner every couple of months. Have them ask some questions. Have them give some perspective when you're struggling. Don't try to build a godly marriage on your own. How about the power of the, the legacy of Christ followers who have done it well? Reading biographies of pastors or missionaries or lay people who have done the Christian life well that exhort and encourage us to love Jesus like they did. The power of being part of a life group or a small group here at church. Just having that regular contact where you're opening up with other people in a similar stage of life saying, here's what it looks like for me pursuing Christ right now. That's our, our first principle for standing firm in our faith. We need to follow the right examples. But you know, in verses 18 and 19, Paul turns his attention from good examples to be imitated to bad examples to be forsaken. Look at verses 18 and 19 again. Here's what Paul says. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears in my eyes, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end, it's destruction. Their God, it's their belly. And they glory in their shame with their minds always set on earthly things. You know, in these verses, Paul warns us about pernicious individuals who will try to pull us away from Jesus. 
There are countless negative influences all around us that will constantly tempt us to leave the path of righteousness and instead walk on the road of the the wicked. But notice another detail we discover in these verses about these dangerous influences. Paul says that as he discusses and recounts them, he, he has tears in his eyes. Whenever Paul thinks about them, he's brokenhearted because these people are now walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. You know, I think the most natural way to understand Paul's brokenheartedness is to realize that they were, these were probably people who were once professing Christ followers themselves. They claimed at one point to follow Jesus, but they didn't stand firm in their faith. They never truly submitted the entirety of their hearts to Christ. Instead, they slowly drifted away into the clutches of the world. So much so that he says their entire lifestyle is now hostile to the cross of Christ, meaning that everything in their life stands in direct contradiction to the power of the gospel. And even worse than falling away from their faith, these individuals are now spreading a dangerous false teaching throughout the city and the church of Philippi. These ungodly men and women are trying to pull the Philippian believers into their heresy. They are the textbook definition of false teachers. As Jesus would say, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. Though these individuals once professed to be citizens of heaven, Paul warns that if you look at their lifestyle, you see that they're really citizens of this world. They might have claimed Jesus with their lips, but they deny the gospel with their lives. Let's summarize Paul's second principle in this way. If we're going to stand firm in our faith, then we need to, point number two, walk differently than the world. We need to walk differently than the world. In verses 18 and 19, Paul gives a clear description of the customs and the behaviors of citizens of this world, of a kingdom, the kingdom of this world that stands in direct contradiction to the kingdom of heaven. And we see four characteristics of those who walk as enemies of the gospel. We see their deity, their endorsement, their disposition, and their destiny. Let's look at that first characteristic, their deity. He says their God is their their bellies. Their God is their belly. Paul is saying that the desires of their bodies actually function as the God of their lives. Now, functional God is anything that we look to that displaces the Lord as our highest affection in our lives. A functional God is something that we look to for meaning and satisfaction in this life. A functional God is something that exudes ultimate control over our lives. And Paul identifies the deity of these people, and he says it's none other than their bellies. Now, the term translated as bellies in our English translation, we can sometimes think of belly being equated with just the physical organ of our stomachs, but really this has a a broader connotation. A closer translation would be the, the cravings of their flesh. They are literally being controlled by the unbridled cravings of whatever the desires of their body is. These are people whose lives are characterized by regularly indulging sexual impulses or entertaining lustful thoughts, gluttonously feasting, being intoxicated and controlled by alcohol, and essentially just doing whatever feels good to them in the moment. It's essentially a hedonistic lifestyle that says pursuing pleasure and self-indulgence is the path to ultimate fulfillment. And they have no shame in this lifestyle either. Notice in the second section, we see that the world just doesn't permit evil and sin. It endorses and celebrates it. 
That's the second thing, their endorsement. Paul says that they actually glory, they celebrate their shameful acts. Rather than feeling guilty or conviction over a lifestyle that, pans, uh, that stands opposed to the way that God has created us, the world wholeheartedly endorses and celebrates a sinful and unrighteous lifestyle. And you know, doesn't that sound like the world that we live in now? You don't see a lot of people who are being very hesitant to celebrate their, their sinful lifestyle. We see materialism equated with the good life. The life of the rich and the materialistic is glamorized at every turn. We see massive rallies every year where Americans come out to champion a woman's right to choose, which is essentially just championing the, the killing of millions of unborn babies in the womb. We see people championing getting drunk or, or smoking pata as the obvious formula for having fun on the weekends, and you should be fine with that. We see almost every kind of sexual sin imaginable uh, celebrated and championed as liberation from the antiquated sexual ethic of Judeo-Christian values. We see atheistic writers celebrate when they write books that turn people away from a belief in God. The world isn't ashamed of sinful pursuits. It gives wholehearted endorsement to them. And the world champions a self-centered and sinful lifestyle. And it ultimately mocks the Christian life as, as prudish, as restrictive, and oppressive. And you know, Paul continues with a third description. He says the citizens of this world have an earthly disposition. He says their minds are set on earthly things. Essentially, he's saying they give, they give no thought to eternity. Their motto is carpe diem, seize the day. Do whatever it is that you can focus on to have your best life here and now. Amass as much money as you can. Enjoy as much pleasure as you can. Do whatever you can to focus right here on the materialistic world and distract yourself from ever thinking about eternity. Don't think about God. Don't think about consequences. Don't think about what happens after this life is over. Do whatever you can to store up treasure here and now. But whatever you do, just try not to think about what comes next. But the reality is, as much as we try to do that, this world will always leave us empty and unsatisfied because eternity is written on, the, on our hearts and eternity awaits all of us on the other side. And that's the fourth thing that Paul highlights. And I believe this is why Paul has tears in his eyes as he writes this description to the Philippian believers. He knows the destiny that awaits all people who are part of the kingdom of this world. Their destiny, their, their end is destruction. That's ultimately the end of the way of the world. It's destruction. All who walk as enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ will spend eternity in hell separated from God's presence. Paul makes this explicit in another one of his epistles in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here's what he says. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. A day of reckoning is coming, and the citizens of the kingdom of this world will be held accountable for their sins. On that day, Jesus will come not as Savior, but as judge. And hell is the eternal, literal destiny for all of those who rejected his offer of salvation and continue to live as a citizen of the kingdom of this world. And Paul recounts their eternal destiny with tears. 
But he, he doesn't want anybody to suffer that punishment. And that's not only Paul. God doesn't want a single person to suffer that punishment either. I think of what we learn in 2 Peter 3, 9, where it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. The Lord is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God doesn't desire anybody to endure that punishment. He wants all people to come to a place of repentance. And we see that so clearly in the message of the gospel. God loved us so much that he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to live the perfect life that we needed to live and then die the death that we deserved. And through the shedding of his blood, he purchased the paperwork for our citizenship to be transferred from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of heaven. And that transfer of citizenship is offered to all of us. It's offered to everybody. All we have to do is through the power of the Spirit, turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the beauty of the gospel message. We have to respond to that. And, and there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation or our justification. We, we are not saved by our works of righteousness. We are saved through grace alone. But the reality is, once we become citizens of heaven, our lifestyle will begin to change. When there's a change in citizenship, there's a change in the culture and the customs and the behaviors as well. Our lives will begin to be transformed into the image of Christ. With our new identity comes the expectation of a new lifestyle. We stop living like the world and we start living like a child of God. Think about this way. When someone immigrates to the United States and they want to become a citizen of the United States, they have to go through a citizenship ceremony. And part of this ceremony, they have to make a pledge of allegiance, essentially. And in this pledge, they have to renounce any former ties and allegiance to their former culture and country. And now they give their allegiance to their new country. That's essentially what we do when we become citizens of heaven. We renounce our former allegiance to sin, to this world, to our selfish pursuits, and instead we commit to living out a new Christ-centered life. So these verses remind us that if we're going to stand firm in our faith, we need to walk differently than the world. Which means this, this morning we should all ask the question, how am I following the characteristics of the world? How am I allowing the characteristics of the world to infiltrate my, my thoughts and my actions? If people looked at my life right now, would they say that my God is my belly? Am I controlled by the desires of my flesh? Are our minds set on earthly things? If people pulled out our calendar, what percentage of the time slots would be eaten up by things that have no eternal impact? Is there an area of sin in my life that I've just been refusing to repent of? Instead of repenting and confessing, I've gotten really good at excusing. If we're going to walk differently than the world, we need to get better at repenting of our sin. If you've heard me preach before, you've probably heard me use this acronym. I, I say it a lot, but I use it because it's so true and so powerful. We need to regularly embrace CAR in our life, C-A-R, confess, accept, request. First, when we see worldliness infiltrating our life, we need to confess that sin. We need to confess that sin before God. First John 1, 8, 9, if anyone confesses their sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when we confess that sin, that's the second part of car. We need to accept God's forgiveness. 
In that moment, we need to accept that God forgives me not because I've earned it, not because I'm righteous, but because of what Jesus has done for me. Jesus' blood has already covered that sin. But then we need to do the R of car. We need to request God's transforming grace, which means we need to say to God, I, I, my mind has been looking at the world and I instead want my mind to be focused on Christ. And the more I look at Christ, the less I'm going to be looking at the world. So God, give me the transforming grace through your spirit to keep my eyes focused on Jesus. I can't do this alone. Give me the strength to be the citizen of heaven that you've called me to be. We all need to do that in our lives. And we see one final tactic for standing firm in our faith in this passage. Here's our third principle, point number three from verse 20. We need to focus on the right kingdom. We need to focus on the right kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to transform our lowly bodies into his glorious body. At the conclusion of chapter three, Paul reminds us, we have to cultivate an eternal perspective. If we want to stand firm in our faith, we need to regularly refocus our attention. As Christ followers, our citizenship is not here in this world. Our primary citizenship is in heaven. That we are kingdom citizens and that citizen trumps everything else. We need to remember that even though we are living in the kingdom of this world, we are citizens of a different kingdom. And soon we will be home in that kingdom as well. Think of it this way. We have a heavenly passport, but we are currently abroad on a business trip. And that's the primary reason that God allows his children to remain here on earth after we put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. He allows us to stay here because he has some unfinished business for us to complete. I think that's what Paul's talking about in Philippians 1.21 where he says, For me to live is Christ, to, to die is gain. Paul says, I'm not afraid of death because that's just the final checkpoint that allows me to re-enter my home country. But he says, as long as I'm not at that checkpoint, that means for me to live as Christ, God's got some unfinished business for me. The focal point of his life is Jesus, meaning that his relationship with Jesus informs and transforms every aspect of his life. In these final verses, Paul is encouraging the Philippian believers to stand firm in their faith by casting their attention to the finish line of their lives. He reminds them of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Paul encourages them to stand firm because he says, Jesus is coming back. We're awaiting his return and it could come at any moment. And when he does return, he, Paul reminds us here of what awaits us. He'll transform our fallen lowly bodies into a glorious one like his. Meaning that day when we get to use our heavenly passport to return home, We'll have bodies that are no longer affected by pandemics. We'll have bodies that are impervious to sickness and decay. We'll have bodies that are free from the presence and the influence of sin once and for all. We'll have bodies that will be free and cleansed from all mental health struggles that we have. We'll have bodies that can withstand being in the full glory of the Lord so we can look upon the one that we love. That's what awaits us on the other side of the finish line. And the more that we focus on the reward of eternity with Christ in his kingdom, the more strength we find to live for him here and now. I love what Paul says in Romans 8.18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's been revealed to us. We're walking through a time of suffering right now. 
there's a lot of suffering going on in the world. And we could fixate on the suffering. We could fixate on the difficulties of the Christian life. We could fixate on all those things. But Paul says the more that we focus on the gain of Christ, the, fo- the, more we're gonna, uh, the less we're going to focus on the pain of this world. So I know it's difficult. I know it's hard. But remember, the glory of eternity is not worth comparing with the momentary difficulties that we're going through right now. I pray that this text has been both a challenge but also an encouragement to you this morning. It's not always easy to live as kingdom citizens in the culture of this world. However, we must remember that Jesus is worth it. There's nothing better than knowing Jesus. Keep looking up and remember who you are in Christ. Your citizenship is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the powerful reminders in this text. It can be so easy for us to confuse our citizenship with citizenship in other things. We can sometimes elevate our citizenship of our country or citizenship of our culture or all these other things and make that the primary focus in our lives. But Father, we know above all, you call us to be Christ followers. That is our core identity, which means that Christ needs to be preeminent in our lives. So Father, as we stand firm in our faith in the midst of a culture of opposition, I pray that you help us be surrounded by godly mentors, that you help us to have the strength to walk differently than the world. And lastly, Father, that you give us the strength to daily refocus our attention on the right kingdom. Father, I pray that I am not building the kingdom of Andrew, but instead I am working to further the kingdom of Christ. I pray that's true for each and every one of us today. We love you. We are so grateful that you purchased our citizenship through the love of Christ. Allow us to live lives of gratitude and holiness in return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.